Well, if I haven't yet introduced myself, my name is Slim. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Our other pastor is serving uh, the two-year-olds. So we were trying to lead by example and do some of that. Um, But ladies and gentlemen, I have something of grave news to report to you, and it's something that that you should be gravely concerned about yourselves as as a follower of Christ. I'm sad to tell you that, that not even the timeless wisdom of the Bible is safe from the wokeness ideology. Isaiah, known for speaking the truth powerfully, speaking God's word divinely, but but even he, even he has been duped by the trendy ideology of the woke movement and has lost the ability to speak God's word the way I want it to be spoken. And so the woke agenda demands that everything identity be identity politics. They want to rewrite history. They, they want to twist narratives and impose their subjective view of reality upon us. And we won't let that, will we? No, instead of a divine message, this woke prophet in, insists on analyzing every event of his day through the lens of oppression and, and privilege and, and social injustices. No, 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 no. Today I am sad to tell you that Isaiah has succumbed to the woke agenda. And has ruined his credibility as a prophet. Y'all, if you're new here today, and you're not sure whether I'm joking or not, let me just be extra clear. I was very much joking, um, trying to be as facetious as possible. Maybe you heard some people giggling during that. Um, I actually went to, uh, just so I'm not plagiarizing, I actually went to ChatGBT this week, uh, which if you don't know is artificial intelligence kind of weird, and said, in the voice of Tucker Carlson, (laughs) insinuate that Isaiah has succumbed to the woke agenda. And that was just the beginning of what it gave me. (laughs) I had a whole television show of material to work with we chose not to go with. Um, And so, before we go any further, that that term woke is just, it's it's been been taken and it's now become a a slur. and, and I, just want to, I just want to state very clearly that term is a term that the black community um, had coined to, to reveal and to have us awaken to the injustices around us. And white supremacy wouldn't even let the black community have that um, and has now taken that term and it's become just the marker of anything bad that we don't like. Um, and so uh, I facetiously titled my sermon here today, Isaiah's Woke Agenda. Um, and I want us to ask the question, though, is Isaiah riding the waves of culture? Is Isaiah just riding the waves of, of woke culture here? Is the Bible just riding those waves? Or is that actually what the Bible is calling us to do we throw out parts of the Bible that sound like, no, that sounds like that's, that's the, an, another's agenda, or do we actually say, this is what the Bible is calling us to? And so, uh, we are talking about Isaiah's woke, quote-unquote, agenda, and the, the path we're going to take to go there is we're going to look at the mission, the method, and the mark. The mission, the method, and the mark. Uh, and so, the mission, if you remember, 
Um, Isaiah is now prophesying 150 years into the future uh, after Israel is now taken into slavery and they are wondering, where are you, O Lord? They're wondering, where is our God? And Isaiah has, has this, these messages of comfort uh, for the people now taken into slavery. And in verse 1, it begins, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, before we talk about what is the mission of, of the servant, I want you to, we, we feel like we have to answer who is the servant that's being talked about here. And I think the, the natural tendency and the, the, the knee-jerk impulse is just so quickly to jump to Jesus. It's to, to just as, as, as uh, instantaneously jump to Jesus. And I just want to begin a hashtag, don't jump to Jesus yet. Hashtag, don't jump to Jesus yet. Um, if that starts trending, I will probably get in trouble because I want us to be very, very clear, jumping to Jesus is not a bad thing. <laughs> jumping to Jesus is usually not a bad thing. I just believe after reading these passages over and over and over and hearing them preached over and over and over, we jump to Jesus too quickly. The reason we do is because the gospel writers themselves say that these servant passages refer to Jesus. So it's really hard to go against the gospel authors, and we're not going to do that. And if I do that, take me out of the pulpit, right? <laughs> so yes, the, all of these servant passages, this is one of four that we're going to see in the, in the book of Isaiah, do refer to Jesus as the ultimate servant. Let me be very clear about that. It is referring to Jesus. However, if it is only about Jesus, what is verse 19 talking about? Verse 19, if you go there, says, Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? You know, that's a really odd way to describe Jesus. Deaf, blind. And so I think what, what's happening here is what happens all throughout kind of these prophetic um, literature is that there is a prophecy that is, that, is, that is speaking to the people in their history and in their time, and there is, there is something being fulfilled then, and there is a prophecy of one to come. And so many times we want to do an either or, that it's either Jesus or someone here, and many, many times it's a both and, right? That it is referring to Jesus, amen, hallelujah, but it's also referring to someone else. And all throughout the scriptures, when we talk about who's the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord is Israel. It's the people of God. And so who is the servant? It's all people of God and Jesus, right? It is both of that. It's all people who serve God, but at the apex of this, who that servant is, is Christ himself. And so Jesus and the people of God. All right. Now, what is the mission of God? What is the mission that's, that's of this servant right here? And let's go back to verse 1. It says, to bring justice to the nations. Very clearly, what is the mission? It's to bring justice to the nations. And so if you ask the question, why did Jesus come? I would say 99% of you would, would say to save us from our sins. And amen, hallelujah. He did come to do that. But according to this passage here, he came to bring justice to the nations as well. And if we are also the servant, what is your, what is your, your mission in life? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen and hallelujah. But also 
to bring justice to the nations is what is required of us as part of our mission here on this earth. It is a both and as well here. And I think so many times we want to divorce these two things and say, no, it's about this or it's about this. But it's about bringing justice to the nations. Now, when we hear the word justice, what do you think of? Usually you think of maybe like a courtroom. Um, you think legally, right? And that's how many times in the Bible it talks about justice. However, this, this word here is, is, the word for justice is the word mishpat. Can everyone say mishpat? It's just a fun word to say. You're like, huh, i got to pick up my mishpat, right? Like there's, it's, it's, a, it's just a great word there. Um, and for this word justice, beautiful sounds, uh, for this word justice, it is a full orb justice. It is, it, is a, it is more than just legal. It is, it is the bigger picture. It's the opposite of tohu. It's the opposite of chaos. It's, it's, it's right ordering. It's the way things were made to be. God's created design, this, this beautiful, how things, how things work together. It's, it, another word you could use there is shalom. It is God's shalom, his peace on earth. And that's what we're to bring to this earth here. It's to bring that. Now, what does that look like? Verse 7 gives us a very explicit description of that. Verse 7 is to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so very, the very first thing it says is to open the eyes that are blind. Now, this, I would argue, is our actual call to wokeness right? It's our actual call to actually reveal what is around us, to actually see what's going on, to open our eyes to the injustices around us. That's what, it, that's what it's being called to, open our eyes to the blind, the things that we've been blinded from, the injustices around us. That's the call to wokeness. Now, then it says to free captives from prison. If, if you look at back in ancient times, those that were imprisoned had a direct link to their economic status in society, to whether they were poor or whether they had money. And if you go, all, you go all the way from ancient times and you go throughout history to today, that is still absolutely true. That we imprison the poor. We imprison the poor more than anyone else. That's actually true then and it's true now because here's what happens, right? If you're spending 90% of your income on just the bare necessities of the world, on your food, on your housing, on your transportation, and then a life event happens. You have a, a, a giant medical bill you have to pay now, and you can't. Well, now what do you do? And you may not have a social network to fall on. What do you do? Well, okay, I guess you have to borrow money. And now you have, in, you have to pay interest on that money, and then maybe you have to borrow some more money, your interest on your interest, right? It, it, it builds up. And if you can't pay it, then people come after you. This is, this is what happens. Like, we are... We are, we are it is just so expensive to be poor. We see that all throughout history. It is expensive to be poor. And then we don't know what to do with all of them, and so then we put them in prison. And that's why from 1972 to today, you've seen our prisons go from like 300,000 to 2 million. We have so many people, we just, we don't know what to do with them, so we'll imprison them. And that is what the call here is, is to free the captives to free the captives, and if we can think of it through this, this debt cancellation, this is this ancient practice in Hebrew culture, to free people from their debts. Deuteronomy 15.1 says this, 
at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Woo. Do we, do we know that verse exists? That's a, that's a rough one for all of our society to think about. Then we go, oh, that's Old Testament. We don't worry about that. That's, I, think that's, I think that's how we treat it. I think we think that, that that seems too big of an ask. And we can't imagine how God would actually work that. But let's don't stop what's possible by, by the limits of our imagination. This is what Scripture has called us to. How do we get that done? Now you can say, okay, that's, that's for the people of God. Okay, let's start there. May there be no need among you. That may, there may be no one in our, in our midst who's just year after year after year after year just, just drowning in debt. Like may that never be said of the people of God because God wishes you and I, the servants, Jesus, you and I, to be the people who are about freeing people from these debts, freeing people from these prisons. And God is the God of justice. This is not charity. This is justice to make this type of work happen. Okay, so God wants, wishes no one to be in prison like that, and I can think of no, no easier day to talk about because we just celebrated it than Juneteenth, a beautiful holiday to celebrate the end of, of full slavery, right? And we would, we, we, jubilant, right? Like that's the year of jubilee. There's all these scriptural themes that are gone on here. What I want us to see is works towards advancing justice like that is not just political work. It's not just social work. It is biblical work. Like this is Isaiah calling us to make these things happen. And so celebrating Juneteenth, I think, is a direct response from Isaiah here to celebrate the, the end of slavery, right? And But I also want us to see this, because amen, hallelujah, that day. But today, in 2023, we think, so much progress, so much advancement. In Alabama, only 30, 34% of African Americans have lost the right to vote. 34%. You think of that huge, that's a huge portion of people, have lost the right to vote, have been disenfranchised and cannot vote. And now in 2022, a year ago, the percentage of African Americans without the right to vote now increased the percentage that were existing at the time of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because we just find more and more ways to disenfranchise people and to not let anyone else encringe upon what we have here. This is what I'm going to say. The call to justice is still active today to still be a part of that, and it is a biblical application of the gospel. So Jesus's mission is not only to forgive sins. Amen. Hallelujah. We will talk about that till our face turns blue, right? But I will also see that only talking about that limits the greater picture of what God has for us in the Bible, that it's forgiveness of sins, but it's also now dealing with the destructive effects of those sins, and it's restoring the shalom in society and saying it's, it's much more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Like, that's what true love is. And so it's shalom on all levels of society. And I think that's the call for the church, is to be a part of that mission. So that's the mission. But now let's talk about the method. Verse 2 says, He will not shout out or cry. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And you think, okay, so he's kind of an introvert. 
What does that mean? <laughs> um, right? Well, the servant, the, the person who's going to bring justice, that's typically the work of a king because who else can do that type of work? But it's been, now it's being referred to, it's the servant doing the work. And remember, the servant is you and I and Jesus will not shout or cry out. Kings, when they wanted what they wanted done, they would shout and cry out. They would control they would control the messaging. And what this is saying is that we will not, that servant will not drown out another. They will not try to control the public discourse. A king might, but this servant is not. Because empires are going to empire, right? That's how empires work. They're going to lead with force, brute force if necessary. That's how empires are going to work. And so what this passage is telling us is that the method of the servant is the one who gets the results of a king without using the power of a king. The servant gets the results of the king without using the power of the king. And when we think of power, what do you think of? You think of the Hulk. Um, you think of strength. Someone flexing their strength, their power. You guys remember the, the 1993 classic movie, Schindler's List? Old, old, old movie? Um, in it, Oscar Schindler is talking to a Nazi army commander about what real power is. And Oscar says this, power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. If you've seen someone with power and they're using it and, and hurting the people around them, you watch that and you go, that's not power. That's a bully. True power is when you have that power and, and you restrain it. it it's, it's something completely different. It's power realizes in constraint. It's realized in compassion because true power comes in the restraint of that power, not in flexing it. I think we all need to hear that, right? Our, our society needs to hear that. Because how does Christ disarm his enemies? He doesn't come in with the power of the king Christ comes in with a restraint of his power, with, with love and grace and gentleness, right? Verse 3 shows us the method. A, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That, is just, that verse just describes, I mean, just the attributes of, this, of a servant. A bruised reed. Maybe many of us don't work with reeds with these plants, and so maybe we don't really get what that is. And I think sometimes for me, uh, visual images are helpful. And so I don't have a reed, but I, 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 I have a plant that I got from Walmart, and I specifically grabbed one that was struggling. And as you can see, it's a flower, or it's soon to be, but the plant was struggling like crazy. This is what we would call a bruised plant, a bruised reed. One where, when I thought of bruised, I think of like, like the dark purple, the dark blues, and things like that. But when I looked at the word bruised in this passage, it's not just the outside pain or outside hurt. It actually refers to a deep, vital injury to a vital organ. And so when you look at this, and you think, how, how do, looking at that verse there, how is the Lord going to approach this plant? How is the Lord going to do something with it? What, what would you do? You just maybe take this off and say, we're done with it? This is a bruised reed he will not break. 
And if you were a planter, you might, you might grab a stick like I put in here, and you might tie it to the stick. And I don't know where I put my string. I thought in my, in my pocket I don't have it right now. <laughs> and you might tie it to this, this stick here. Because you, you, have, you have this gentleness. You have, to, you have to use gentleness to work with something as fragile as this right now. To be able to attach it so that it has time to heal. So that it can reclaim what it once was. I wish I had that string. <laughs> We're going to just lead it on that speaker right there for now. The, the plant image, I think, is so helpful for us because what it's telling us is the servant won't break the plant. If you are the bruised reed, the servant won't break you. The servant won't give up on you. The servant won't discard you and say, you're done with. You're hopeless. What that verse tells us, that verse tells us is that the servant, Jesus, Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. Is that where you're at today? Do you feel like a plant that's just been broke and you're like, there's not much holding me together right now? Jesus says, I will not discard you. I will not give up on you. I will not break you. I will help you and I will bind you back together. And I won't snuff you out like like a smoldering wick because I care for you. Do, you. do you feel the gentleness and compassion and the, the, the method of this servant? That's who we are talking about right here. This is the method of the servant, the servant king. And so the servant is, is gentle and winsome. But remember, it's not just Jesus. This should be the church as well. This should be you and I. should just be known for our, our kindness, our gentleness, our winsomeness, our, our care for one another. We should be known as the most kind, gentle, compassionate people in the world. Are we? We should never be known as the most condescending, elitist, judgmental people in the world. Because after all, we're just servants of the king. That's all we are. We're just servants of the king. And though we are gentle, we still have calls for justice. Right? There is a both and here. We want the results of the king. We want to see justice. Amen. Hallelujah but we will not use the methods of those kings. I think the, the best il- illustration I can think of um, that, that, that exemplifies this better than anyone else in history that I could think of would be Martin Luther King Jr., who just, because of his, his commitment to Scripture, he actually worked out his faith in civil disobedience. Y'all see that? Because of his faith, he was civilly dis- disobedient, and he, was done, and he did it in a nonviolent way. When everyone in the day would say, why wouldn't you respond with violence? Respond violence with violence. And he said, because of my faith in Scripture, I cannot respond this way. And there's this great quote uh, that he gives in his last speech before being murdered, where he quotes Bull Connor and says, turn the fire hoses on. And what he's, what he's saying is, you can turn the fire hoses on us, but we will never turn on you. In fact, we are going to love the hate right out of you. And there's something beautiful and powerful about that. When you see someone loving in that way, it disarms you. It breaks that will to, to struggle for power. And it makes you want to sing. It makes you want to say, like, this is how the world should be. And if you, if you notice throughout this passage, I don't know if you saw it, all throughout this passage, 
There's these calls to sing a new song. Did you notice that? This whole passage is really a song. It's, it's poetry. It's the call to sing something new and something beautiful. But who is the singers? The singers in this passage, which I think is just wonderful, it's not just the people. It's all of creation, right? It's the animals. It's the birds. It's the plants. It's the trees. It talks about the wilderness and, and the, the desert. It, it talks about all of these the, the creation shouting out and worshiping their God and king, welcoming the new king. Because the coastlands, the sea, all of them see this new king coming, and they go, oh, that's He's going to bring justice and shalom even to creation. And why, do, why does creation shout for this new king? Because military powers like Babylon don't just exploit humans, they exploit the earth as well. And so now creation sees this new governance coming and says, the new king's coming. Hallelujah. And so when you and I praise and when you guys sing new songs, we actually join in the birds in their singing. We actually join in creation itself joining their song of praising the Lord, of this beauty, this shalom that's coming here on this earth. That, that's what we get to do here. Now, all of that creation groaning, what are they groaning for? And that's when we talk about this last point. This is the, the mark. Um, how would you describe this type of song? How would you describe the song of creation? How would you describe the song that, that this passage is? How would you, how would you depict it? And when you think of a new song, um, I love listening to new songs, but in literature, in the, the ancient Near Eastern literature, a new song is actually its own genre. You wrote a new song when your king declared victory. It's when, you're, when, you're, when your group declared victory, you wrote a new song about that victory. It's something to celebrate, that, that something has changed, that something new is happening and so, remember, Israel is in slavery. They were in slavery because they, they, they had the blinders on to the, to the oppression around them. And so they went into slavery. And now they're being freed from slavery. And so the, and they're being told to sing a new song. So then the question is, did it work? Are the blinders off Israel? Do they see the oppression around them? And we already quoted it earlier in verse 19. No. They're delivered from slavery sing a new song, but they're still deaf, dumb, and blind to all of the things that are around them. And so now the question goes, what do you do? What do you do to reach a people who are unreachable? I mean, maybe y'all might know someone like that. Like, what do you do in this time? Well, this is what I want us to see. Though we beg for justice... And you bet we are going to beg and strive for justice. This is the, the mission. We had better plead for mercy as well. We had better plead for mercy as well. Because if someone were to describe me, would they describe me as seeing everything clear? Or having many, many blind spots? And being very, very blind to the sins that, that are all around me? And so I, I, I strive for justice, but I better beg for mercy and that's what I think we have to see here, that we, we are pleading to the Lord of mercy, and that's why I want to talk about another bruise that you see throughout the scriptures. Another bruise that's a very popular one that you may have heard about is really it's the mark of the servant. In, in 
creation. In, in the, the garden, you had Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve living life perfectly in shalom, the way the world was meant to be, right? And then they sinned. And then in that moment, sin came into the world and it, it, it brought its corrupting effects to everything so quickly and the effects of sin come out so quickly. And in Genesis 3.15, we see this and God has already spoken to the serpent, to the devil, but now the consequences are here. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, many times, if you've not studied this passage, that can be a very confusing passage because there's just pronouns everywhere. And you're like, I don't know who we're talking about, what we're talking about, and that's okay. Um, that, that's why it's struggling and it's confusing. But it forces you to slow down and ask the question, what's happening? And so let's just go to the, the very end of that where it says, he shall bruise your head. Who is the he? It's actually many theologians agree that it's referring to Jesus. He's prophesying Jesus shall bruise whose head? The serpent's head. And the serpent shall bruise Jesus' heel. Now, for my, all of my pastoral life, the way I understood this was that Jesus went to the snake and just stomped on the snake's head so hard, just curb stomped the snake so hard that it, that it bruised his heel. That's how I understood this. And then this week when I started thinking through what is that different type of bruise that our passage is talking about, it made me see it a little bit differently. That if, the, if a bruise is a, is a deep contusion to a vital organ, then Jesus' stomp on, on, on the snake, on the devil, is not just the impact of hitting the ground. The snake actually bites, bites him. And it might be a bruise on the outside, it might, it might have shown to be that way, but it's going to take a long time for the venom to seep up and to creep up and to ultimately take Jesus' life. And it's this beautiful image of the mark of the servant who loves you and I so, so much, who sees the injustices around us and sees the helpless state we're in and sees our, our, our pride and our commitment to ourself, our selfishness and to our own empire and says, I'll step in and I'll do something about that, even at the cost of my own life. And that's what happens on the cross. That Jesus comes in and he takes all of that on himself in our place. That Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you. I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you. I mean, if you, if, if you found yourself at a picnic and, and a snake came up and you want to save your family and you step on the snake and a snake bites you, and if it's a poisonous, deadly snake, you might have moments to live. You wouldn't die right away, but it, it, the venom will be coursing through. That's what's happening to Jesus. And he takes that bruise out of love and out of compassion to see all of Shalom restored upon himself. That is the mark of the servant. God is brimming with mercy and grace, though he is a God of justice. Amen? God is brimming with grace, and it is costly, as you can see. That grace is actually costly. Jesus' act to save humanity cost him his life. And so that's the mission, that's the method, and that's the mark of the servant. And I want you to see that God has so much compassion on humanity that he acts with mercy and justice to deliver it. 
even at the cost of his own life. Now, what does that mean for you and me, the other servants in the room? So what? First thing I want you to do is see. If we talk about becoming woke, becoming awakened to what is around us, where has God uniquely equipped you to see the injustices around you? There are injustices everywhere. We talked about only a few of them in this service already. There are just, there's, there's, there's educational justice, there is medical injustice, there, there is there's healthcare injustice, there's so many different ways we can see that. There, there's housing injustice, there's so many things that we can look at and go, where has God equipped you to see it? And then to do something about it. And so the first thing I would say is, look, see. Let's not live in the blindness. But second, since it gives us a very big emphasis on freeing people, let's just get real practical and let's just cancel our physical debts. Isn't that wild? You can actually do that. You can say, you don't owe me. Isn't that wild? And it's not, it's not charity. It's a requirement from God to say, you don't owe me. Where, who owes you? The Lord's actually demanded of you. And if it's expensive to be poor, may we see that and respond to that. And may that never be said amongst this church here, that we have someone in need. We, we know we meet it. We care for it. And then lastly, let's cancel spiritual and moral debts. Because in the Lord's Prayer, when the Lord teaches us how to pray, we say, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. When someone sins against us, we are now in their debt. And they, it's up to them to decide whether to forgive or not. But when someone sins against you, you have now decided the decision of whether to forgive them or not. And if we are being called to cancel debts physically, amen, we are also called to cancel it with our spiritual and moral lives as well. Because if we know we have a God of justice but we're pleading for mercy and grace. We better offer that same mercy and grace to people around us. And so who is it around you who has hurt you? I know it's great personal cost to forgive them. You take it upon yourself to do so. Jesus knows that. How do we move forward? We do it with gentleness, with mercy and justice. And so are we marked by that? Are we marked by gentleness and mercy as much as we are by justice? I want us to never have one elevated over the other. I think we have to be about both. And so let's take on the mission, the method, and the mark of the servant as we go out this week. Let me pray for us.